Hey there, welcome to night school. And this is a kitchen counter episode. Got all my gear set up on the kitchen counter. So that's the sort of atmosphere, that's the sort of headspace I want this episode to be in. A kitchen counter episode. First thing I'm going to talk about is an idea that's been very helpful to me, especially with regards to discipline. And that's the idea of giving yourself permission. And when people think of giving themselves permission, it's usually to do something. Giving yourself permission to have something or do something. It's usually an action. Uh, Giving myself permission to have the donut. You know, I I think I'm just going to have that donut today. I've been working out. You know, it's that kind of idea. The donut. You can't spell don't without donut. Or no, sorry. (laughs) You can't spell donut without don't. Excuse me. But it's that sort of idea. It's like giving yourself permission to have a treat. Or to indulge in something. But for me, the idea of giving yourself permission has more to do with giving yourself permission to not do something that you would otherwise do or that you otherwise should do. But it can only help you if you've already developed some kind of discipline around it, or if you already have a tendency to do things you're supposed to do. And a great example would be fitness, but it really could be anything that is somewhat of a chore or a routine. And the fitness example is pretty obvious. You would wake up on a given day and say, you know what? I'm going to give myself myself permission to not work out today. I'm going to not go for a run. I'm going to not do my push-ups today. I've been doing a lot of them. I've been keeping up with my routine. I'm sore. I'm going to keep, give myself permission to not bark. Hold on a second. I need to spray him. Okay. A pause button. We've paused it once, two minutes in. But it's the idea of, you know, you've been keeping up, and then so you tell yourself, you know, today I'm going to take it... You don't say, I'm going to take it easy. You give yourself permission to take it easy. But it's not a definite decision to not do that. It's just saying, you know what? I'm going to let today breathe. And if I don't end up doing any push-ups, I'm not even going to worry about it. Or if if I don't end up working out, I'm not going to worry about it. And only you can judge, really, whether whether you're going to, you know, cause a fatal blow if you're going to hit your discipline with a fatal blow by not doing something on a given day. Because early on, when you're developing a discipline, and I don't like to think of discipline as individual disciplines. I think discipline is something that is a whole. I think that it is a larger whole that you learn, and then you can apply it to individual skills or individual behaviors. But discipline itself tends to apply very similarly to different things, and those different things interlock and form your larger discipline. So I don't like the idea of like thinking of discipline as these individual disciplines. But if you're very early on in the process of developing discipline surrounding a certain skill or activity, behavior, you can't afford to skip it because that's what you want to do. That's what you're used to doing. If it's new to you, you've been skipping it your whole life maybe or you've gone some extended period of time skipping it. You've been giving yourself permission for a very long time to not do it and you haven't been doing it. 
So you give yourself permission after you've already developed a habit or a discipline surrounding a certain activity. So if you've already been working out for you know an extended period of time and you want to do it, there are days where you don't want to, but overall in your life, there is a trend of want or even need where you don't feel right if you don't do it. And that's kind of where I'm at with certain things that I do where if I don't do it on a day that I'm supposed to do it, as part of my schedule or routine, it, it's very similar to not, it's similar to not showering or not doing some other essential thing like brushing your teeth. And, you know, for example, if I don't walk, you know, I, I've been trying to get back into running even though my lung is fucked up just to test it out. But, you know, just getting some kind of movement, extended movement, at least an hour, you know, depending on how much time there is. But it's the same for anything, lifting weights, doing push-ups, doing sit-ups, any of that. But it also could be something not as obvious as fitness. You know, it could be something, it could be like paying your bills on time. You know, I've never had a problem paying my bills on time if I have the money. Uh, But, you know, lately, for example, there are times where I'm like, I'm going to wait until the last possible day where I can pay this bill, this stack of bills, just because, you know, I have this anxiety and this fear and, you know, we're in this time of great uncertainty. So it's like I want to have this money in my bank account for as long as I possibly can before I pay this bill. But there are days where you give yourself permission or you give yourself periods of time where it's like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself permission to let this bill sit here for the next two weeks. And then one day you wake up, you look at the stack of bills and you're just like, you know what, I'm going to pay them all. Or it could be a phone call, it could be you have to call some, make an appointment, do anything, and you give yourself permission to not do it, but then you just end up doing it. Because that's what happens when you give yourself permission to not do something, is you might find that, oh, hey, hey, I actually have a little bit of time today, and I feel maybe a little bit differently than I did this morning. And so, hey, I have I have an hour, it's, it's early evening, and I suddenly have this hour that I didn't know was going to be open today. And hey, I kind of have some energy. I kind of have some momentum. So hey, I wasn't going to do any push-ups today, but you know what? I have an hour. I'm going to do 100 push-ups or I'm going to do 10 push-ups. It doesn't have to be something lofty. It could simply be like five push-ups. Oh, hey, I have 20 minutes. I'm going to do 20 push-ups, whatever it is. Or hey, you know, I wasn't going to meditate today. I woke up late. I have to be somewhere. I wasn't going to meditate. And then you find yourself with a little bit of downtime. So you give yourself permission to not do it. And then when you find yourself in a mindset where you say, hey, I I have some time and I could do that. So you end up doing it in the long, you know, at the end of the day, you end up doing that thing that you gave yourself permission not to do. And what that is, is it's letting go. It's the same thing as letting go. It's like Alan Watts used to talk about somebody who is struggling to learn how to swim and they're just fighting it and they're fighting it and forcing it, forcing and fighting. And then the moment when they decide, I give up, they notice that their legs start kicking, their arms start moving, and suddenly they find themselves swimming. And it's sort of the same idea, except it's a little more deliberate. It's a, it's a little less unconscious and more deliberate, where you make a decision, where you're like, you know, I gave myself, I left it open. I let go of that. I decided I wasn't going to force this into my day. But then when, when a moment allowed, it turned out that I had time to do that. And I realized that I would actually feel a lot better if I did that. And sometimes that's when you feel best. 
you know, because it's one thing to wake up and be like, I have to do this today, because that's an important part of a discipline as well, is just saying, I don't feel like doing it, but I, I'm going to do it. I have to do it. And that happens a lot, and you feel good when you do it. When you don't want to do something and you do it, you feel really good afterward. But sometimes it can feel even better when you give yourself permission to not do something and you still end up doing it. Because there wasn't anything forced about it. It was totally voluntary. But you really have to be motivated to begin with. You really have to have developed that internal motivation. Because something you see is when someone has been disciplined, say, early in their life, when they have a strict discipline, especially surrounding, say, fitness or diet, because, say, their parents or their coaches forced them to do it, and they did it. You know, uh, an example is I, I know of a guy who was in the military, and when he got out of the military, he just ballooned. He ballooned up to, like, 300 pounds, and when I heard about that, I, I was trying to figure it out, because I was just like, how do you spend all that time developing such a an intense discipline. You go through boot camp and all that, and then you get out of the military, and you're, you know, you know, not including things that might lead to overeating or overindulgence, like trauma. I don't know. I don't think this guy was in war. I'm not sure. I don't think so. But I was just trying to figure it out. Like, how do you go from having this intense military discipline to the complete opposite? And I, I was like, well, maybe just being told to do it. You did it because you were told to do it, and it was part of the job or part of your life. If it was your parents or your you know, football coach or somebody who you know, was like, you need to do this, you need to run, you need to do this and that, and you're going to stay in shape that way. Or it could be homework, it could be anything. But the second that somebody is left to their own devices, they're not used to commanding themselves to do that. It wasn't their own force of will that led to them doing that into, you know, being committed to that discipline, it was other people telling them. And so when they have the opportunity to decide for themselves, they might overindulge or they might find out that they really don't care. You know, and it might not even be a bad thing for them. They might think, you know, I'm just going to, at this point in my life, especially somebody who's been a soldier or if it was somebody who was in war or something like that, they might just be so (laughs) happy to be, you know, back and just, some normal world that it's like, yeah, why not eat all the donuts that come my way? Um, But uh, I think there is something to that where some people are so used to somebody else telling them to do something, their idea of discipline is external. It's somebody else telling them to do something, and they do it because they have to, or they they understand the value of doing that based on that set of circumstances. But when it comes to their own time, the will to do it just isn't there. Um, And, you know, I I would never recommend approaching every day with the mindset that I'm talking about of giving yourself permission to not do something. Like I was talking about a second ago, I think oftentimes you wake up and you say, I have to do this today. I don't want to. I don't feel like it but I have to do this today. And that's how you develop the capacity to give yourself permission to not do things. I don't think you can really develop that without forcing yourself to do it most of the time. Because if every day you wake up, especially early on in a discipline, and every day you wake up and you say, I'm going to give myself permission to not do it, you know, you're probably going to, it's probably going to, you're going to trend toward not doing it. 
So there has to be a certain amount of, you have to be fairly strict with yourself, I feel like, in order for this to work. But once it starts working, it's an incredible feeling. And I guess that's why I'm recommending it. That's why I'm bringing it up is that it's that feeling of, of being like, you know, I don't have to do this today. And I'm just going to treat it like a void. I'm going to treat it like empty space. And then as your day goes on, you might have a relaxing morning because you don't feel that need to go, go, go. You don't feel that need to cram every second with something. You don't feel like you're on a, you don't feel like you're a train sticking to some kind of schedule. Got to get to the platform. Got to get to the platform. I'm a train. You know, you don't think that way. And so you might have a very relaxing day. But then, like I said, you'll find that near the end of the day, you have an hour or more. And you think, you know, do I really want to sit around like scrolling on my computer? Or maybe I could put something on. Even if you're watching a show or a movie or listening to a podcast, whatever it is, you might find that, hey, you know, I don't really want to sit here passively. I can just, I can do 10 push-ups, take a break, do another 10 push-ups, I can do this. I can read something, you know, because, I mean, it's, it's not purely physical. I think discipline is something that is most easily thought about and illustrated as a physical discipline. But, it, of course, it applies to any sort of structure. Like I said, it could be paying your bills on time. It could be reading, studying, it could uh, be, you know, meditation, obviously. I've been avoiding mentioning it. I, I, just, I, I have this idea that when I talk about meditation, it's the most obnoxious thing in the world. <laughs> I have this idea that whenever I talk about meditation, that it's, it's, just, it's like degrading. And it's a little bit different because meditation is one of those things where I do it in the morning I try to find at least 20 minutes, 30 minutes is ideal, and if I can go longer, that's even better, but I try to, less than 20 minutes, I don't feel like I've really had a, a chance to properly devote myself, or properly get into the right mindset that it takes to benefit from meditation. Not that you can't benefit from just taking a couple minutes, um, but uh with meditation. I try to do it in the morning. And it's funny because you think you wake up with a blank slate. You think that you wake up and you need meditation less. But, you know, for me, even though I don't remember a lot of my dreams, I feel like my dreams exhaust me. I feel like I exist in this. I feel like I'm, things are just too active while I'm sleeping. And like I said, even if I don't vividly remember what happened, I often wake up feeling like I, I just went through a whole other day. As a, as a living, breathing person, which I did. You know, mentally, you know, if you dream all night or even most of the night, you might as well be living in another world. And if that's true, did you really, truly rest? Did you really, truly rest if you, had a, a, if you have an active dream life? I often wake up and feel like I didn't. Maybe there's something else going on. I don't know. But I find that waking up and as soon as I brush my teeth, you know, it's it's great. It's great to work meditation into your day while your coffee cools down. You know, I'm the type of person where if I brew coffee, I want to drink it right away and I sometimes burn my mouth horribly. So meditation has a practical use in that it gives me my time. Meditation? Oh, I call it sitting around waiting for my coffee to cool. 
I call meditation my coffee cool down time. Kind of like that though for your brain. But I wake up sometimes and I just feel exhausted. I feel kind of I don't know. I just I I just don't feel clear would be a better way of putting it. And meditating early in the day it is almost like showering or cleaning myself, but it's cleaning your brain out. And so for me, it's more helpful to do it early. And there are times where I do it twice a day, where I do it in the morning and the evening, or if I'm really going, going for it and I have the time, I'll do it you know, multiple times in a day. But right now and in general, I feel like that morning time meditation is the most important. And it really it clears your head for the whole day. And as you accumulate momentum of thought and feeling and all these other things that we experience throughout the day, it's much more manageable. You can manage those things as they come. And for that matter, too, I recommend not starting your day with news or social media or, you know, just frustrating interactions if you can possibly avoid it. Um, I, I kind of wait, you know, these days I'm having a hard time not checking things, not checking my person, not so much my personal accounts or anything like that, but I'm having a hard time not looking for updates on what's going on in the world. Even though I know it could potentially frustrate me at the very least, depress me, agitate me. I find that at least waiting as long as I can. And it's not like one of those things where I'm just waiting. Oh, is it 4 o'clock yet so I can check the news? The news? Is it 4 o'clock yet so I can check the news? You know, it's not like I think that way. But it's just at a certain point in the day, I kind of go, eh, yeah, I'll look at something. I'll look at it. And once I do that, I, I, it's very easy for me to get caught up where I continually check it periodically as the night goes on. But right now, I feel like there's some function to it. I mean, I, I honestly, I feel like I have to check the Thurston County scanner page to see if there's a protest going on in a certain part of town so that I don't drive have to drive through it or whatever. Uh, you know, there's there's a practical side to it as well where with just the state of our world today, or, you know, finding out, hey, did they did they shut down stores again? Did they shut down the stores again? Uh, you know, just finding out those things, because I'm finding through this whole process, I was talking to my friend Miles about this, you know, in March or April, but I was like, you aren't really, if you're not checking stuff often enough, you don't really get the memo. Like, I would not have known that, I mean, if I hadn't been paying attention and talking to people, I, nobody would have told me that coronavirus was even here. Nobody, you know, the coronavi would it would have caught me completely by surprise if I had been taking the month off from the news or or from if I had been just avoiding talking to everybody. It, there was no memo that went out that I'm aware of. You know, we've gotten those texts from the government before, like where everybody gets a text message from the president. And you'd think that they would have sent that out concerning all of this stuff that's going on, but the reality is you you might not know. You know, I mean, I think of last September where I really took that entire month off. I think I did some podcasts. I mean, it's not like I was totally under a rock, but I didn't look at anything. I took that month off. That was an intense month of just study and meditation for me, and I really wasn't paying attention to anything. And as a result... 
you know, it's not like I have friends who are like the town crier who tell me exactly what's going on. So that month, if, if what had been going on the last few months had been going on last September, I might not have known. I might have just gone to the store and been like, why are people wearing masks? Uh, so anyway, this is just me justifying why I'm paying more attention right now. But I think there's, aside from just being curious, being concerned, there's also just that practical side right now where it's just everything is happening. Everything is happening. But there's so many unexpected things that could come up on any given day. And then just socially, culturally. I mean, you got to know what word you can't say. You got to find out what word was banned today. There's some truth to that, though. I mean, and that's the strange thing is when people suddenly decide that something is offensive. You know, as, like as soon as somebody decides, that, oh, the consensus is that you cannot do or say this anymore. And granted, most of that stuff has been kind of subtly churning, maybe not so subtly churning in the background for a while, when that stuff breaks out into the mainstream, if you're not paying attention, you might not know. Not that you should follow it. Not that you should necessarily listen and absorb it. But uh, it's one of those things where if you don't pay attention, I mean, this is the kind of, this is what happened to a lot of older Democrats and liberals over the last few years. Like thinking about my mom's generation, people who have been leftists since the 1960s, and, you know, aren't, like, revolutionaries by any means, but people who probably considered themselves hippie-ish, and they voted Democrat their entire lives, and they just they just kind of veer in that direction and have tried to live peaceful lives. There's a lot of older people like that, and a lot of those people were completely blindsided the last few years by some of the changes uh, in in just everything first of all but definitely in some of the ideas that the left is pushing and now those ideas have become even more mainstream which you know how revolutionary is an idea if corporations immediately go along with it <laughs> you know what i mean where if all these major corporations hear something and they're like oh yeah okay okay we're gonna make a statement in favor of that and yeah, you know, it's just it's so funny where it's like the idea you think of some if something is truly revolutionary, you'd think that every institution around would be completely resistant until the last possible second. But yet here they are. Just immediately change. They immediately change their tune and uh, just adopt it all. Uh, but just, you know, that older generation, though, it's like I, I've, I saw it with people. I know people from that generation who would consider themselves, you know, very left of center. But they weren't keeping track of, of all the conversations taking place at colleges and in every corner of the Internet. So many of those people were blindsided when somebody suddenly started saying something totally new and not just saying it, but being like, how dare you think that way? How dare you think there's two genders? You think you're a leftist? Well, guess what? You're a Republican. You know, just out of nowhere, stuff that those people just wouldn't have known was going on these, in, in these corners of culture, the corners of culture. And I guess that kind of gets into the next point I wanted to talk about today in a way, yeah, it, it does connect, where 
whenever somebody suddenly adopts a new way of expressing themselves, it always makes me very uncomfortable when there's a sudden change in language. And, you know, I, th- I think some examples of that are slang. Like when you're in a, when you're a teenager, when you're a kid, you know, slang is new slang is going to come and you adopt it because you think it's like it's our language now. We're not going to say the same things our parents said when when they were teenagers. We got our own things. I think examples of that are like the word tight, where it's basically synonymous with cool. I may have spoken about this recently, but it's worth speaking about again. Um, the first time I heard the word tight used was I was in, you know, it must have been Toys R Us or Fred Meyer, some store that had a video game set up where you could play a new video game. And there was this Mexican kid, I was watching him play maybe a Nintendo 64 game, it's probably 1997. And uh, he was playing this new game, and he was just kind of muttering to himself, and I was watching him, and he, he, he was going, tight, that's tight. And I had never heard a single person ever say that before. And I immediately knew what he meant. That's the funny thing, is like the context. I immediately knew what he was saying was like, look at these graphics. Oh, this game is cool. But he was saying, that's tight. And I was blown away because it was just new to me. It was totally new. I'd never heard somebody describe something they liked as tight. And it was. It took a while. It was probably two years almost before I started to hear the people I knew say that. I think it was when I went to junior high. Suddenly, as the as seventh grade progressed, I started to notice more and more people calling things tight, and I didn't do it. I did not do it because uh, I I just I liked what I had. I liked cool. I wasn't gonna adopt tight. But it was gradual. My point is is that it was gradual, where I heard this kid say it, and uh, then it it, it took almost two years, maybe, before I started to hear all of my peers calling things tight. You know, it probably started among a certain group of people, and then it just worked its way, you know, into everybody, but now everybody was saying tight. Girls were saying tight. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then then it just kind of... People didn't really hold on to it. Some people still use it, but it's not its not the cutting edge. It's not on the cutting edge of language, and parents didn't use it. You know, parents weren't in a, in a position to use tight. Maybe some of them trying to relate to their kids started to say it. I don't know. And then when I got into high school, probably my junior, junior year of high school, and by then people had been saying tight left and right. Tight left and right. They'd been saying it, you know, left and right for years, when my friends and I first started smoking pot, probably junior year, when we'd get high, we'd jokingly, we'd ironically, you know, facetiously say, that's tight, and we'd laugh. And guess what? We suddenly started to say it. It was always with a sense of irony, but uh, we did start to say it regularly. And I, I, you know, I haven't said it in, probably since then, but still, it was something where it was very gradual in my experience, and that's kind of how slang and trends were, is you saw them gradually develop. But as information has sped up, as communication has increased, as you know, the global village, as Marshall McLuhan would put it, as the global village has gotten even tighter knit, we see things taking off much faster, too fast. 
We see slang just develop overnight. And that's fine. You know, that's expected. Like teenagers with phones and social media accounts, yeah, they're going to develop new slang. I mean, it's like a tree, you know, we're used to trees changing in the winter and leaves fall off in the fall and, you know, all that stuff. A very poetic way of putting, of describing the seasons. Uh, Trees change in winter and, you know, leaves fall in the fall. But, uh, you know, we're used to that rate of change when it comes to things like language. But, you know, if, if the sun were to, you know, if the rotation of the earth were to speed up, of course, the seasons would change at a different rate. And so I think that's kind of what's happened with our brains as communication is sped up. It's almost like the planet is rotating faster. Uh, so, of course, teens are going to have new slang and all of this. And, uh, and of course, I'm going to be, you know, an old man about it. Of course, I'm going to be resistant. You know, I remember when people started saying fire about things. I, I just was like, oh, no. Oh, no. A, n- a new one? You know, I, do we really need a new one? Fortunately, cool has stuck around. Maybe that's just my world, but uh, my cool world, but I'm glad cool has just stuck around. I feel like cool has never been properly dethroned. There's flavor of the week terms that come and go, but I, I feel like cool has never and will never be dethroned. But going back to the idea of. Uh, the rate of, of new slang, new terms, new phrasing for things. I'm never bothered by teenagers doing that. I'm not bothered by young people, but I find it really disturbing when I see adults doing it. Because eventually adults will adopt the slang of youth. They've always done it. They've always wanted to stay hip. But they've always been several steps behind. But interestingly, adults have access to the same culture, the same points of reference that teenagers do today. And they actually aren't that different, you know, aside from the fact that they may have more responsibilities and they're at jobs. They're paying attention to many of the same things. They're playing video games. You know, they're looking at the same websites. I don't think there was any point in history where both teens and adults were paying attention to so many of the same points of reference. So it's not surprising that adults would be, you know, just just a half a step behind teenagers now. And as adults have become less and less comfortable with the idea of being adults, as Peter Pan syndrome becomes more and more prevalent, one way of holding on to your youth is to not hold on to your specific youth, but to hold on to the youth of others and to try to move at the same rate of... to try to change alongside those youth, I guess would be a way of putting it. And uh, you can see that with just slang. You know, it, it, it's always disturbed me when, when people I know, people I like, people I like, when I see people I like suddenly start using new slang... To me, that's it's like being over-cultured. It's, it's being too immersed, and it's a sign, too. It's a sign that they're paying too much attention to... I, I don't know. It, to me, it's just someone who's... That, that person's too immersed. They're like in the eye of the tornado. 
I don't know. I mean, the eye of the tornado, isn't that where it's like calm? Maybe not that, but they're, they're too close to the center of the tornado <laughs> would be a way of putting it. And it just, it disturbs me when I see people who are adults adopting the language of youth. And should I care? No. And do I really care? No. I'm just talking about it. I'm just riffing. And it's just something that mildly disturbs me. So many of the things that I rant about, they just mildly disturb me. It's like they just plant some slightly sinister seed that I have to talk about in order to get it out. It's not like it really deeply troubles me. And you can see this with internet speak, you know, things that people start typing and talking a certain way online, and uh, that spills out into reality. And as those things become more and more blurred, that becomes more and more prevalent. And yeah, eventually you'll adopt some of these things. I've used the example many times on this show of selfie where I was very resistant to selfie, and then I realized, oh, that's simply going to be the word for it. I might not like the way it sounds. I don't like the way a lot of words sound that existed long before I was a person. Uh, But some things simply become the word for a certain thing, and you're going to have to put more effort in to find another word, and you're probably going to have a hard time communicating with people what you're even talking about if you try to find a replacement. Selfie being the example again. Like if you tried to come up with another way of saying selfie, you're going to spend so much energy trying to do that that what's even the point? You might as well just say the stupid word. Say the stupid word and move on with it. You know, you might as well just do that. Uh, You might as well just accept it. So that's a different thing, though, because that's, again, more gradual. It's more gradual when you just kind of go, okay, this thing that seemed like it was a passing phase and I didn't like it is actually somewhat of an institution. Selfie is an institution in our language, in our communication, the way that we express ourselves. It's just we're not going to find a replacement for it. You know when somebody takes a self-portrait where their phone is directed at themselves? It's like, are you going to say that every time? Um, But uh, right now we're seeing massive changes in language, though. And and not just the stuff like I was saying, like the stuff that's that was offensive, or you know, or sorry, was just accepted and is now offensive. Not even that stuff, because that's a little different. That stuff is very politically and socially charged. And you know, if if a certain movement gets enough momentum, that's a slightly different story. You know, and it should be debated and discussed. You know, whenever something becomes, you know, socially inappropriate, I think we should be able to think and speak critically about it. But it's different than what I'm talking about here, which is, for example, one example is I've noticed a lot more people saying y'all, specifically white women in their 20s and 30s. And trust me, I don't like getting on some kick where I'm like, white women. You, you see what white women are doing? You know, I fucking hate that shit. Um, but at the same time, I also notice certain people doing certain things. And one of those, since basically this current, you know, this, this current situation developed over the last couple of months, I've noticed a massive increase in that demographic using y'all. And it's really repellent. 
because that's something that people say in the South, and it's something that you know black people say, and uh, in part because of their you know the Southern roots you know that many black people have. But it's something that I'm suddenly seeing from people who I've known my entire life. My entire I was about to say lives. My entire lives feels that way. I've known these people my entire lives. I've known them over several lifetimes. Feels that way. But uh, I'm noticing it from girls that I grew up with, girls that I've known for years, suddenly, you know, using this y'all language. And uh, this is getting into that territory I don't like to get into of, here's some things that suck. It does suck, though. I don't like it. (laughs) Don't ask me why. It's just this sudden shift. It's too sudden for me. I'm noticing it very suddenly and among many people. And I guess it just comes across as disingenuous. It reminds me of Madonna's British accent, which... Did people make too big of a deal out of that? You know, because if you do... If you're around certain people a lot, you will adopt their way of speaking. It's something that I even catch myself doing, where if I'm talking to a certain person and they use a certain word a lot or a certain kind of phrasing... I almost feel this urge to do it, too. And that's sort of, you know, a microcosm of what a tribe is or what a subculture or even a whole culture is. It's a lot of people doing exactly that. People kind of start to mirror each other. And when, that, when enough people do that, it really does create a culture. Somebody sees somebody dressing a certain way. Somebody, you know, oh, I like the way they prepare the food. I'm going to do the same. At least with that, there's like a, I like the taste of it maybe. But it happens in a lot more subtle ways where it's just you can be talking to somebody and you start to model their speech. And I don't know, Madonna, I guess she lived in England. And what's funny about that, I guess this is a tangent, but like what's funny about Madonna is that of course was people's way of trying to destroy her. It was their way of tearing the idol down, whose name just happens to be Madonna, which is perfect. But, like, what were they trying to say? That Madonna's a poser. Madonna's a poser. Madonna's a poser. You know, what is the point of, of what they were saying? I guess it was just trying to say she's inauthentic, she's fake. Like, they're trying to say Madonna isn't unique. Madonna isn't a unique creative individual with a massive amount of charisma. Madonna isn't talented. You know, I think it's it's in response to the fact that she is all of those things. You know, people wouldn't be... If Madonna was just a an average Jane, you know, people wouldn't have really cared. They would just think, oh, it's kind of annoying that my friend Madonna went to England and now she has a like a slight British accent. That's kind of annoying. Because when your friends do that, it is annoying. And, and I mean, I guess that's what I'm getting at, too. It's like growing up, like if, if your friend suddenly adopted a new style, like if your friend got a makeover, a part of you is kind of like, who do you think you are? Like, oh, my friend went punk and now he's wearing leather jackets. And as my friend Miles pointed out, I was describing somebody to him and he was like, oh, you mean when, when the leather jacket wears them? And I was like, God, that's so perfect. When, when you see somebody and you're like, that leather jacket is wearing you. 
you're not wearing that leather jacket. But sometimes, like, growing up, it happens where you're close to somebody, and you, go, you, you all go through phases, and people think this about you. It's not just that you thinking this about people, but it's like your friend decides to, like, oh, you got the latest haircut. Or, you know, just some somebody makes a sudden change in the way that they express themselves. And if it's somebody you know very well, it, it's easy to kind of be like, who do you think you are getting that haircut? Who do you think you are getting that haircut? You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> you know, you can get really ridiculous about it. But there is something to that. There is something to that sort of, that effect, when just somebody suddenly does something. And I mean, maybe I'm experiencing that now. Maybe I never grew past this because I'm like, who, who are you to suddenly start saying y'all in 2020? But uh, it, it's it's something that it's easy for for us to do. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with reacting that way because it's sort of a way of keeping each other in check, maybe. It's a way of being like, hey, slow down there. You should ease into your punk phase. Don't just go to the store and and buy the uniform. Ease into it. Start with a bouncing soles patch on the arm of your jacket. Then a week later, put some studs in. And then then you can get the the crust punk patches. And then you can you know do this with your hair. You know, ease into it. Ease into it. Give yourself permission. No, but uh, it, it's something, though, that just, I think it's natural in us to see that, to see a sudden change and to not trust it. I think that's what it comes down to. It's, there's something that's untrustworthy about it. About it. Who's taking on a British accent? No. But it's sort of the effect that Madonna had, where Madonna had this this fake British accent. And was it really fake? I don't even know. How much time was she spending with British people? Because if she was around British people all the time, she very well might have developed their manner of speaking. You know, not completely. And, And do I think Madonna's a poser? Probably. Do I think Madonna's a poser? Probably a little bit. Probably a little bit. I mean, she did that fake kiss. I guess it was a real kiss, but it felt fake. She did that that woman-on-woman kiss and stuff. You know, she's always done things for attention. As she should. She's a pop star. As she should. And I guess it's kind of the same thing. I, I kind of see pop stars as perpetual teenagers, so it's not surprising that they're continually trying to stay hip that they're continually trying to do new things that appeal to young audiences who are always shifting, you know? But I kind of, it's, it's what I'm seeing with adults now who aren't that thing. They're not in a market where they need to try to do that. And they adopt these new ideas and these new ways of speaking and phrasing things. And I guess it'll always bother me when I see something happen like that. And it's not only instantaneous, but it's widespread. Because it just seems like mind control. And right now in particular, it, it it has a great deal of social impact where it's coupled with people trying to change the world. And, and I don't think that they really know how they're going to change the world except by changing superficial things about themselves and 
criticizing and attacking superficial things about the world around them. And it's not that language isn't powerful, but when I see a, a lot of people, you know, say making preachy posts online that all start with y'all, when these people would never have said that, they never would have been preaching, nor would they have been beginning their sermon with y'all two months ago. You know, time has sped up, at least for, you know, for this type of thing. Uh, you know, just, it makes me just, it makes me feel like I can't trust what's going on. And I trust the bigger picture. I always trust the bigger picture. You know, it's not that I don't trust the world or I don't trust the universe or I don't trust a lot of people. I, you know, it's like I've said on here before, I, I kind of trust everyone. And I feel like in trusting everyone, the bullshitters cancel each other out. But you can also get what's left. Like, like bullshitter, the bullshit cancels itself out, but some of the bullshitters do have truth. You know, some people do have some truth within that bullshit, and by trusting everyone, the stuff that's in conflict, the stuff that's at war and doing battle with each other, that stuff ends up ca uh, canceling itself out, and you're just left with maybe some substance that you can actually use. So I do believe in that idea of trusting everyone, because if you trust no one, well, you're just going to exist in this paranoid state where you never learn anything from anybody, whereas trusting everyone, well, you know... You take things at face value, and when things are taken at face value, there's still something underneath that. You know, the stuff that's at face value, in, that's con the stuff that's standing face-to-face -face in conflict with, I don't know, this is getting convoluted. Point being, you know, I, I think it's better to be trusting and to try to gain something through that trust without being duped. I think you can trust without being duped. And, and I think that's trusting the larger process, the universe, God, whatever else it is you want to call it. Just yourself, because you're a part of that too. You're a part of the universe and you're a part of God, so why wouldn't you trust yourself? And I guess when I see people suddenly shift and change, I, I think they don't trust themselves. They don't trust themselves enough to stay put a little bit and not dig their feet in but they don't seem to trust themselves enough to just keep doing what they were doing. Whether they Do they feel like they were being indecent before? Do they feel like they were ignorant? You know, what were they doing up to this point that required such a sudden and drastic change in the way they speak and the way they do things? And, and again, part of the concern is just how widespread it is and how similar it is. And this plays into the last point I want to make, which is putting things in your own words. And you can easily get consumed by that, and you want to say everything your own way. And it becomes very egotistical, where everything you say has to be some kind of unique expression. And that can be exhausting, and it can alienate people from you. It can make it very difficult to understand you, and it can make you unrelatable. And trust me, I, I feel like I suffer from this. I suffer. 
Uh, but I, I do try to put things in my own words, but it kind of goes back to what you're taught in school, where you're asked to rephrase things in your own words. And it's not a pointless exercise. It's not just busy work. When a teacher asks you to do that, put this idea in your own words. It's because it familiarizes you with the concept that you're talking about. If you can put something in your own words, it means you understand the idea of it. That you're not just fixated on memorizing specific words in a specific order. You know, anybody can repeat a slogan. Anybody can memorize a phrase. Anybody can think they understand a certain phrase. But if you come up with a, a synonymous way of putting it, you know, can you still understand the idea that's being communicated? And is it roughly the same? And I think this is especially important right now where we're seeing a lot of slogans, a lot of repetition. Very similar phrases being repeated over and over again, and not a lot of people writing them down themselves in their own way. Because we're in the age where, you know, online, very few people express themselves individually. You see a lot of screen caps of Twitter posts, you see a lot of memes, you see a lot of images that are shared, and people who actually write things out long form, you know, we're, we've been in the age of too long, didn't read, as people say, for a very long time, and it's understandable. People want to consume as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, so they generally don't want to sit there and read someone's individual long form thoughts, and that's okay. You know, even though I'm one of those people who likes to even though I'm long-winded, you know, I don't resent the fact that people want, you know, the Halloween candy-sized dose of an idea. And there's so much value to being concise and knowing how to phrase things simply and packing a lot into just a sentence or a paragraph. It's something that I have a lot of difficulty doing. I'm just long-winded by nature, because for me, it's very difficult to pack in everything I want to pack in in just a single line. Um, but uh, I know that people respond to that. But I don't know how often people think of those phrases and those slogans in their own terms. They just rebroadcast them, they just repeat them, and in the same way that your teacher expected you to rewrite something. If you're going to write an essay, yeah, even though you're basically just reiterating what somebody else said, you know, a lot of essays that you write, you know, when you're younger in English class, a lot of those, you're not expected to write some new, you're not, you're not expected to come up with any actual critical analysis or say anything truly interesting. You're basically just expected to read a book, read a couple books, and rephrase what the authors of those books said. And the reason you're supposed to do that, though, is because you're... The teacher wants you to understand the ideas being expressed. They want you to get beyond the symbols, the words, the characters that are used to express those, and they want to know that you understand the concepts. So learning how to write things in your own words, it's almost alchemy. It's almost a really simple form of alchemy. I think all alchemy is actually very simple. 
<laughs> people have racked their brains around. It's a pseudoscience. They never figured out alchemy. And it's like alchemy is in everything, and it's actually very simple and intuitive. But linguistic alchemy is as simple as rephrasing things in your own way. And it's very easy to get to get it's very easy to get self-cherishing and attached to your way of saying and doing things. And a lot gets lost in doing that. A lot, you know, when your ego gets in the way and you think like, oh, I've always got to say things my own way. I've always got to express things my own way. Sometimes that can cloud the idea just as much as repeating something someone else said without ever thinking about it. You know, so the idea is always what's most important. And you can go too far one way or the other, and I haven't figured it out. I haven't figured out the perfect balance for communicating an idea that is both unique but also easily understood and relatable. Uh, that's, you know, maybe a goal. Maybe that'll be a goal of mine to find out a way to do that. Um, but uh, it's just it, when you see something being repeated... And, you know, slogans often don't have the meaning that they... Slogans don't often represent the the words that they're saying, I guess I would say. That's not a, a great way of putting it. You know, they don't, they don't often represent the entirety of the ideas behind them might be a better way. I think, like, Make America Great Again, Black Lives Matter... These things on, if you take these things at face value, they are what they are, and they're actually not disagreeable at all. But we know that both of those slogans are not limited to the ideas that that simple sentence in each case expresses. And I'm not going to say too much more about that, only that slogans can't by their very nature, encompass everything they represent if they are part of a larger social or political movement. But I think it's important to put those things in your own words if you believe them. And even if it is just masturbatory, even if it is just an exercise, even if you decide that, oh, the words that I came up with are actually the same exact words that everyone else already said, you might find that, and, and it might not be worth repeating the things that you came up on, with on your own. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it for your own sake, because I think that's what's behind all of this. It's, you're not doing it for anybody else's sake. In the same way that your teacher asked you to rewrite something in your own words, or to explain something in your own words... They didn't do that so that they would benefit. It's not like your teacher is sitting there and they're like, I really need these students to rewrite and rephrase these great authors so that I can figure out what these authors were saying. I went to college and I just, I never knew what these authors were saying. I need these teenagers to tell me in their own words. Otherwise, I'll never know. You know, it's not like a teacher was approaching that. They wanted you to do it for your own sake because they're teaching you. And they're having you go through the process, and they want to guide you into some kind of breakthrough or epiphany. Or even if it's not that big, even if it's not a, something that grand, they at least just want you to understand. They, they just want to get your brain, you know, the gears of your brain turning, you know. They just want that, if nothing else, to know that you thought about something as you did it. Because it's very easy to do the exact opposite of that. 
which is to not think of something at all, despite the fact that you are doing it. And it might be something you do every day and you don't realize you're even making a decision. You don't realize it's even possible to think critically about this or to personalize it in any way. And uh, that's why things are so important. You know, that's, that's, why, or that's why the words you use are so important. And you might find that you, like I said, you have no better way of putting it. You could even break it down to just individual words. Like, I'm somebody who I wanted to find better words for certain concepts. Love. I wasn't comfortable using the word love, except one-on-one with certain family members. But in terms of this greater spiritual idea, I did not ever want to use that word. And I tried to find ways around it. But they all led me back to that word. And not that that word itself is that important. It's just, as far as the English language goes, I couldn't find anything better. I could not find a better word. But I'm glad that I did that song and dance with myself. I'm glad that my ego was like, maybe try to find a unique way of saying it. Maybe try to find your own way of putting it. Because I think that gave me a greater understanding of something like love. Love on the largest scale. An infinite resource. In having to do that, you know, that dance, I came to a greater understanding of what that word truly encompassed and meant. There's many words like that. Selfie. <laughs> Even the word selfie, from, from large-scale love, the infinite resource of love, I went through the same process as I did with the word selfie, where I tried to not use it. I tried to have my own way of thinking about it or phrasing it. And I came back and I was just like, I'm not going to come up with a better word than selfie. I'm not going to come up with a better word for God. I'm not going to come up with a better word for love. I'm not going to come up with a better word for selfie. Just sometimes you just got to go with it. But none of those ideas were brand new. I think they became what they are gradually. And I think it's okay to always have a little bit of resistance to new things. Even if people are adapting them quickly. Even if people are adapting them, you know, as part of some sort of widespread social movement. And they're telling you, if you don't go along with it, that you're wrong. Well, maybe that should be even more incentive to stop and think about it more time to sit with it and maybe try to come up with your own way of phrasing it. Because it might not be that you wholly disagree with whatever someone's trying to tell you. But if you come up with your own way of phrasing it, your own way of thinking about it, well, if you do end up agreeing with it, you're going to be a much more valuable asset to that idea. Even if it is just for your own ego, even if it is just to be a little more unique, to say things your own way, that's still going to add more value to the idea that you are getting behind. And so as we revert to just a culture of pure sloganeering, I think it's going to be even more important 
to put things in your own words, to be patient, to be patient with ideas, to remember that the earth isn't spinning any faster than it was two months ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, to remember that the rate at which communication increases is something that you do have to respond to and think about. But it's not something that you have to continually react to. Sometimes you can give yourself permission to not react, to not stay up to date, to not be up to date. And if you find yourself with a little bit of time and you're like, you know what, I've had a chance to think about it and I've decided to update myself. I've decided to go along with this thing that I wasn't quite so sure about. You know, I think that idea of giving yourself permission to not do something or to wait or to relax, that applies very much to what I'm talking about here with ideas, with language. Give yourself permission to not use the latest slang. You know, and then if you find yourself looking at something later that day and you go, oh, you know, that is tight. I wasn't so sure about that word tight, but, you know, I'm looking at this tree and I've never seen a tree exactly like this. And the only word that comes to mind is tight. You might find that. That might be the breakthrough you needed. And from then on, you have a a new understanding of what tight means. Maybe you were resistant to using the word tight because you just hadn't seen anything that seemed tight to you. And then you saw that gnarly tree that looked like it had been around for 10,000 years. That looked like it had produced the apple that you-know-who took a big bite out of. You know, maybe maybe that's what it took for you to understand what tight means. And you came to an even greater understanding because you didn't force yourself. You didn't jump at the first opportunity you had. You didn't say it to impress anybody else. Maybe you had to put it in your own words first. Maybe you had to think about it using your own ideas to come to a greater understanding of that idea. And in the end, you realized, hey, tight is the word. I don't have a better word. But you might just as well decide that it's not the word. And you might come up with your own word. And if you do that, maybe it's a word other people will eventually use. Because it turns out all slang began with one person. Which is really interesting to think about. The, the fact that somebody once said something, and they either had so much charisma or so much social influence or both, whatever it was, that other people were like, you know what, I'm going to start saying that too. It all started with somebody coming up with their own idea, their own phrase, their own word. All of those things that get repeated, all of those things that become trends, they all start with one person putting it their own way. It doesn't mean you have to be that person. It doesn't mean you even can be that person. Most people wish they were that person. Most people wish they could just decide that, hey, I'm going to come up with a new slang synonym for cool, and it's going to take off nationwide. 
You know, that'd be amazing if you could just decide to do that. Most people can't. But what most people can do is they can take some time with things. They can try to relate to things in their own way, with patience, with consideration. And if a word or a phrase or anything else that someone says represents a larger idea, it's always worth thinking of it in your own terms. Even if you come to the same conclusion, even if you decide that somebody else's terms are worth using, it's always worth deciding to do it after going through your own process. Because that way you know you truly understand it. And that should always be the goal, is understanding. Because having an understanding, that's pretty tight. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can